Because your life was furious, hardcore and fast So now is the time for the Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast Now if your life was furious, hardcore and fast You feel like you want to put your life on blast Just call up the show and I talk about your past Cause now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast The Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro House Recovery Centers What? That's right. It's Oro House Recovery Centers, formerly known as Aloe Recovery. Still the same place. Still founded by our good friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob. Still treating addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. Still with decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. Still with the amenities you wouldn't believe the fucking surfing, the equine therapy, the sound bath meditation, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge experience, still making sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is critical, and still the place to go if you're totally fucked and you want to be treated like a person. So again, if you're fucked and you're looking for a place to get better, I highly suggest Oro House Recovery Centers. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Soberlink. At Soberlink, somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol, because it is widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings. That's why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professional, recovery coach, or anyone else who worries about your well-being. As an exclusive offer to our listeners, email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey for 50 bucks off your first device. Do it for that someone who cares. Let Soberlink help you to stay off of the sauce and visit them at soberlink.com slash dopey. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by a great recovery podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, 
alt-recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in a world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Spotify, and MiddleAgesRecovery.com. That's MiddleAgesRecovery.com. And I was on an episode, and it was pretty sweet. So check them out. And finally, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the passion, pain, and pathos of Dopey Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast, and you wouldn't believe the stuff on Dopey Patreon these days. My newest video, it's, uh, it's, it's a taste of the new Dopey YouTube. It's called uh, Living in the Fourth Dimension. Check it out. Fucking dopey Patreon. Lots of shit is happening there. There's music. There's old clips of the show. There's art. There's video. There's interviews. Go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Help support the show. When you support Patreon, it really helps us with the show. Also, when you buy gear, it really helps us with the show. So go to dopeypodcast.com. There's a crazy new beautiful uh, Grateful Dead based dopey shirt with the Bertha Skull and Roses business. It is, I, I think it's very beautiful. I'm into it. I cannot wait to get one. I hope you guys get one. There's a shitload. I, I bought too many dopey trucker hats, so I have a bunch of dopey trucker hats. If you thought for a second that maybe you should buy one, please buy one. Just Venmo me like 25 bucks. Add five bucks if you want extra stickers. If somebody else wants Stickers, just Venmo me whatever you want, and I will send you the appropriate amount of stickers. There's also the usual classic Dopey snapbacks and Oive snapbacks and Dopey stickers. The Venmo is Dopey Podcast. Don't be shy. Don't be a stranger. And if you uh, buy anything, please post yourself in it. We love to see you guys in the Dopey shit. Anyway, enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. Hello, welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I'm at my dad's house. It is the end of the summer. School is starting this week, and um, it's been a crazy week of death uh, from fentanyl. Uh, The great Michael K. Williams from The Night Of, Boardwalk Empire, and of course, The Wire died this week. He overdosed on fentanyl. The New York Post said he was doing heroin in his kitchen. And um, such a shame. And then last week, uh, this comedian, Fuquan Johnson, and a couple other people died at a party in L.A. Kate Quigley, this comedian who is the girlfriend of the Hootie and the Blowfish singer, uh, is still in the hospital. And it's crazy. I mean, with Michael K. Williams... I heard him on Mark Marin's podcast talking about recovery a minute ago, like like within the past six months. He just did a movie called Body Brokers about rehabs needing addicts and, and that whole controversial scene. And he's talking about his recovery story and he sounded really sincere. So I wonder, like, did it happen after that or was he lying? And it fucks me up. It makes me think of Chris. Chris, who was on 
you know, obviously the greatest recovery podcast in the world, lying about his recovery and and relapsing, but lying and dying. And Michael K. Williams doing the same thing. It's it's frightening because as an addict, I know that I'm sober, but you guys don't know that I'm sober. If next week I turn up dead, you'd be like, oh, Dave sounded so fine last week, whatever. And it's hard to digest this kind of stuff. And with somebody like Michael K. Williams, I spent so much time watching The Wire, so much time watching The Night Of, and some time watching Boardwalk Empire, that it felt like I knew him. It felt like he was my friend. Obviously, he didn't know me. I always, you know, I always thought he would make it onto Dopey, and I'm very disappointed he didn't. I'm very sad that he's dead. I'm sad uh, that anybody dies from drug addiction. And this fentanyl is a game changer to the max. It makes me wonder, though, like, when I was using, when I was using, fentanyl wasn't a thing, you know? When I was using, fentanyl was like people would get fentanyl lollipops or they'd get those analgesic fentanyl patches, but I never did, and it certainly wasn't available to me. So it's like if you're using fentanyl, it's like Russian roulette with fentanyl now, so you need to really be careful, and we know a ton of people around the Dopey Nation community that actually provide fentanyl test kits. So if you need, if you're using, you know, don't be embarrassed. Reach out. Uh, write us at dopeypodcast at gmail.com and we can connect you with somebody. Either Tracy Helton or Austin can get you guys fentanyl testing and some Narcan because we don't want you guys to die. So please be careful. And just to be clear... We don't know that Michael K. Williams died of fentanyl. It's an alleged fentanyl overdose, but it's definitely a drug overdose. And one thing that I've always, you know, considered is that people OD on heroin too. Fentanyl, it seems much easier to die from. It seems like a tiny bit of fentanyl will kill you. And if you're casually doing coke, it can kill you. So, like, if you're a casual cocaine user who listens to Dopey uh, and you want to live... Please get fentanyl testing so you can test your coke before you casually do it. It's very important because this shit is crazy. People are just dying everywhere, and, uh, and we don't want you guys to die too. So please be careful. Um, it's a very weird time. It's an uncertain time. Like the acute COVID shit had dropped off. You know, obviously, New York City is open. People are going back to work. People are, are unemployment is over. So it, it implies that COVID has ramped down. But, like, if you guys know about Dopey, we were supposed to be at the Park City Song Summit today. We were supposed to spend four days there. Me and Sam were going to do it up, interview as many people as we can, and it got canceled. And not only did Park City get canceled, Healing Appalachia got canceled, and Jazz Fest got canceled, and basically everything is getting canceled. So it is a, a serious time of uncertainty. And then at the same time, all these fucking hurricanes are coming. And, uh, and we were told that the Hurricane, hurricane Ida... I think. Was it Hurricane Ida? I think it was a different one. It was Hurricane Henri. Hurricane Henry or Henri, depending on your pronunciation, uh, was coming to New York, and it was supposed to come to our town. It was supposed to hit land at Sayville, and we freaked out, and we battened down the hatches. For the first time, 
like we took everything out of the yard. Our, our, our garage became like a hoarder's paradise, and it's just ridiculous. And then, of course, the hurricane was nothing. But meanwhile, Louisiana got battened down. And, um, and just now, there was tons of flooding from Ida. So it is an uncertain time. So we hope you guys are doing well. Uh, we survived everything. Katz has survived everything. My family survived everything. Okay. I just heard from uh, Jeremy Turner in Louisiana. He said all of his property was destroyed except for the two dopey hats that he just bought and had shipped to him. So I don't know what that is. Prophecy? Promise? I don't know. But our heart goes out to our dopey nation members in Louisiana. So what I'm trying to say is it's a very uncertain time. You know, I want to do like an ad. In times like these of uncertainty, we need to turn to dopey. So let dopey make you feel better. And I I mean, for me, like in my, I've been uncertain and I've turned to like food. In my uncertain times, I turn to ice cream. I turn to food. I turn to television. I've been staying up late watching bad TV. Fucking... I watched White Lotus. I thought it was pretty good. I I would recommend White Lotus to the Dopey Nation. There's a lot of drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. It is a beautiful, sensual Hawaiian holiday. But uh, it is not like high-caliber TV, but it it is fun, and it's on HBO. All right, that's enough of my TV reviews. It's an uncertain time. What I've done to feel better is I've gone back to my meetings. I've started to carve out my spiritual program, my spiritual path. I pray, I meditate, I exercise, I listen to the good old Grateful Dead cast, and I feel pretty good. I'm trying to be mindful of, uh, of where I'm at, trying to do that. And, and it's, it's actually going well. And it's funny, because I never would have expected me to be talking like this at all. I was the person in the hurricane who would get as much drugs as I could have because I knew I wouldn't be able to leave. You know, I was the person who, uh, I wasn't doing too much coke at parties, but I I didn't want to hear about a spiritual solution. I didn't want to hear about uh, having a good life because my good life was staying high. And now I have this amazing life, and the only reason I have it is because I'm not getting high. So I'm just passing that along to you guys as somebody who loved to get high. And now, like I like to say, I used to love doing dope, but now I just love doing dopey. But enough about me. I hope you guys are doing well in these uncertain times. And we have an exciting show. We have Mr. Riley Walker, a psychedelic, proggy, folk musician, crazy guitar player, really beautiful guitar playing and really beautiful record covers. So here he is. He has a heavy story. Here he is, Mr. Riley Walker. But before we get to the great Riley Walker, I want to tell you guys about BetterHelp.com because this episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp.com. Life is full of stressors. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have. Your life is probably stressful. Mine is incredibly stressful. You have to go to betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast and you save some money also. You may not be feeling down and out and depressed or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high and your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel a little strain in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. 
BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. And dopey listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash DopeyPodcast. Here is Riley Walker. He really hit us with the dopey. So here we go. Riley Walker. He's an incredible guitar player, really beautiful musician. Like the music you make is beautiful. And you're like we were just saying, you're young and vibrant. And, and, and you're laying some shit down, and you've recently been through a bunch of shit, and his name is Riley Walker. So welcome to the show. Thank you for calling me young at 32. That's uh, I feel like I'm getting older in, in the industry I'm in, which is, I don't know, indie rock and uh, uh, the showbiz of like uh, shitty small club circuits. There's like a Saved by the Bell new class sort of vibe. There's, a, there's like a new generation, you know? And they're hipper, they're cooler, they're better looking, and I'm just this old, decrepit mess. But in terms of drug addicts, maybe I'm like a, I'm a a younger-ish age. I don't know. But thank you, and I appreciate all the nice words you said about the music. Before before we say anything, I'm very curious about this young, like I I'm a, I'm a musician, right? I'm a I'm a guitar player, but I'm not a particularly good guitar player. I wrote some decent songs. But but and I used to play in like ska bands in New York City in the early early nineties. And I know it's like, oh hey that's great. Well you know you don't have to don't patronize me here, Riley. Okay, just take it easy. Okay. Um, okay, okay. But the fact of the matter was, I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to like I want I, I was still young when and I'm, you were young when when people sold a lot of CDs and got rich. It doesn't seem like people get rich the same way. Can you break down being a young working musician for me? Right. Well. I just want to first say that uh, in no way am I patronizing you. I'm a, I'm a Northeast Corridor skyhead for life. Catch 22, keys be nice, changed my life. That's from New Brunswick. I don't know why I remember that. I don't remember important people in my life's birthdays, but I still remember shitty ska records from back in the day. Anywho, um, well, I'm 32 years old, and I came into music. You know, my generation stole music. We were like the stealing the jams. Uh, generation, which I thought was cool, and I still think it's cool. I think stealing music is awesome. Steal my music, I can't speak for anybody else. Um, so I never had any concept of making money. Obviously, I remember like the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and stuff selling the trillion records and CDs at the time, I guess. Um, but that was never a concept I was like interested in or knew what was going to happen. So I went in like you know, knowing that it was going to be a shit show and um, riding the poverty line pretty hard. Um, and I accepted that and I was willing to do that. So it was just, that's like half of it. You just have to accept like you're not going to make money at all at it. Um, these days I'm a little more balanced and like I can pay my cell phone bill and health insurance, but I'm definitely not rolling in it. Um, that just comes from, but I, I also put up with the same things I used to. Like when I started out, when I was like 17 and 18, it was like, you know, sleep on the floor, sleep on a beach, sleep on a, sleep in the van, all that stuff. Um, I'm kind of, I, I have bit more standards as to my comfort level now so we'll get a nice cheap airbnb so 
but I still don't make a ton of money. And it's, you know, it's independent art. You have to sell yourself a lot. You have to do all the dumb social media stuff to make it work. Right. Um, and when it's good, it's good. <clears throat> but when it's bad, it's, it's really bad. And um, especially like the last couple of years with COVID or whatever, um, it's been a lot of, it's been a struggle for a lot of people. Um, but, and I've had to like kind of move my goalposts to like online selling records and merch. And I, I worked at Target last year for a while. Um, but that's something I'm willing to do. And I accept, you know, I don't have any sort of education. I didn't go to college. Um, I don't have a good resume to speak up. I've been fired for every job I, every straight job I ever had for like, you know, being high or stealing or something like that. So. What was what was what, what was the best job you got fired from for being high? The best well, or, none the, of them or the worst, say. Riley, the worst, the, the funniest one. <laughs> That's what I want to hear. The funniest one that you got fired from uh, being high. Right. Well, I was a Jimmy John's bike delivery person in the city of Chicago, um, and I was like blacked out, drunk every day, and like high on crack and coke doing that job, and I just like constantly flipped over my bike and I broke my collarbone once like on a job delivery. Uh, I hit a big pothole and just like lost a bunch of my front teeth and like woke up in a hospital. I was like, well, I, and Jimmy John's like, Hey, you can come get your final check on Friday. I was too ashamed to do it. I was like, you know, I had somebody's, uh, like number nine, just like totally squash. And I actually ate the sandwich. They gave me back the sandwich after <laughs> I like, kind of woke up. They're like, here, this was on you. And I ate the sandwich after, um, I had regained consciousness and knew where I was. Right, right. And, 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 and the indie rock scene you speak of definitely romances scrubby, like, poverty, right? The romance of being an indie rock scrubby poor person, it's all kind of intertwined, which I love too. I come from the same world. Um, when did you start getting high? When I was like 13, I uh, started to get pretty high. Yeah. What was it? What was your first drug? Um, well, outside of alcohol, I got drunk when I was probably like 11 or 12. Okay. Um, and then it was like smoking a bunch of weed, like dirt weed with like seeds that came in a big brick. I was seeing like big, and like in no way was I like a tough guy or even associated with like the underground sort of like uh, backdoor, like dark CD alley stuff. I just like had hillbilly friends. Like, Hillbillies just acquired, like, pounds of swag. So I, I remember seeing just, like, tons of swag weed. And I learned to do all this stuff from, like, people with, like, mufflers and stuff, like, laying in their yard. Like, uh, northern, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, which is a pretty pilled out sort of city. Uh-huh. Um, there's no, there's nice things about it now, but it's, like, super rough, belty, Midwest, Reaganomics, like, steal your grandma's pain meds and like talk about how you're going to go to welding school while you're nodding off sort of <laughs> yes. I, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go to welding school and make a hundred thousand dollars a year. So those are my friends and friends, older brothers, like always hooked us up with beer and weed. So those are the two things that, um, made perfect sense for me when I was 13. Were you playing guitar already? Yeah, I started playing guitar around the same time. And it's funny because, like, I, would, I played, like, in uh, Christian, like, youth group bands, like, all these, like, nice Christian worship songs. I, I, are, are you uh, of the evangelical faith, or where, where, do, where do you fall on the religious spectrum, or did you have any? I'm 100% a uh, New York City Jew, uh, without, okay, without, right. without any God 
and without any Judaism. Everything else, just neuroses and like being worried and overthinking stuff and being funny. Besides that, I'm no. pretty, you know, that's my, my, my religious bent. Right on. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a hip one. That's a hip one to fall into. But yeah, I, I grew up like, you know, there were, I don't think there was many Jewish people where I In Rockford? Where no, there was like two maybe. You know, I don't, there's like pockets in the Midwest of like Jewish communities, but I think it's most like an East Coast, West Coast hang, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I, I was playing Christian music and then like all of a sudden I got the weed and I was like, whoa, sick, pavement, dinosaur junior, sonic youth and dark black Sabbath riffs and stuff. So drugs immediately made me feel cool and stuff. I felt really connected to culture, which is all I wanted to do was like some form of connection. What was, what was the, what was the religious music you were doing prior to becoming like this stoner guitar player? Oh, like, uh, I mean, just go on YouTube and Google Hillsong United, who's this big mega church in Australia who writes Christian um, rock anthems. And, like, they call it praise and worship music. It's the music they play. I don't know if you've ever hung at a Christian church or, like, been to a Sunday service. A couple, maybe songs. a couple. Yeah, it's kind of boring, you know. Um, but, Would you perform at the church? Oh, yeah, big time. It wasn't like a band I had. It was like a church band, literally playing in the church every Wednesday for our youth group. So Wednesday night is youth group in 99.9% of uh, American Christian churches. So Wednesday night, and it's like, you know, it's, it's a service made for children and teenagers. So they have like a hip light show and they play POD when you walk in that song alive. And you're like, ah, <laughs> ah. and, and there was, there was a big to do. My first, one of my first consequences of, my youth was getting booted from the band. So I copped a resentment right there towards God. So how did they so know? Like, how did they know you were using that? And did you enjoy You were like the guitar player in the church band. I was the guitar player in the church band. I ruled. I did my job very well. Uh-huh. Um, and did you sing? Did you sing in the band? No, I did not sing. That job went to a couple other people who were pretty talented at it. I, I, I don't think I had my, uh, my singing cojones just then. You're a good um, singer, man. You're a good singer. So, like, I, I'm surprised. Well, you you didn't you didn't praise the Lord through your your vocals, but you were doing it through the guitar playing. And how did they find out you were using? Right. Well, I got ratted out because the, as soon as I started smoking weed and drinking, I wanted everybody to know. Yes. That this was happening. You know, like I'm like I'm doing this. This is happening. I want to get caught. I want to be in trouble for this. Finally, I could be like an outsider and like be a fucked up kid because. Um, you know, enough like fucked up shit in my life happened, but in general, I had like a fine, like middle class sort of scenario. Um, obviously there's like deep seated shit in there that we can unpack, but that's for my therapist to think, not the dopey podcast. No, it's good. But, what, what, do you, I think, listen, our whole audience is drug addicts in and out of recovery. So anything that you can share helps them. You know, I mean, we have fun, but all this shit helps them. You know what I mean? Background shit bad shit, whatever. It helps people when you share it. Right. Yeah. Well, in general, it's just that sense of not belonging. Like I just grew up with this yeah. neuroses in my mind and this panicking feeling in my mind. They're like, I hate myself. Um, I'm useless. I'm ugly. I was like a fat kid too. God damn. Oh, being a fat kid sucks at that time, especially. Um, it just wasn't fun to not feel good looking, not feel wanted. So I'm always this attention-seeking, craving kid, which right. means I would talk a lot in class, 
And around the same time I started smoking and drinking, um, even a few years before that, I was told that this kid won't shut the fuck up in class. We got to give him some damn pills to calm him the fuck down. They gave so you pills? Shut. Hell yeah, they gave me Ritalin. And I was not, and like, you know, most kids maybe would be like scared of that sort of thing or be like, I'm not, I'm not a regular. I don't need pills, mommy. But as soon as they were like, you know, uh, the child psychologist wants to hook you up on these pills that turn you into a laser beam of productivity and focus. I was like, yes. Like, I was absolutely so down to Dude, take my meds. It's, I mean, like, my mother would tell me, right, that I had this learning disability. I went to this crazy good school, and my mother would tell me all the time that I had a learning disability, but they never put drugs on the table. Like, they never gave me the option of taking focus pills and you know, I, I, dude, I, I'd be a good guitar player too. I bet if I took Ritalin in high school. Yeah, Ritalin was um, so good, and my brain is always so hyperactive. I don't know if I, it was diagnosed correctly or if it really truly helped me. <laughs> but I, but, but I knew that if I took, because I would get one in the morning, and then like, um, my mom would like, you know, go to get ready for work or whatever, and then. I remember getting, like, the bottle would be on the table sometimes, and I would take another. I knew if I took one, it would bounce me out, but I was like, if I take two, then I turn into a laser beam, and I'm just, like, totally, I'm high, you know, I'm, like, high as fuck. I, like, so the concept of being high started at, like, nine, ten years old. This stuff, if I take two of them, more than the one that I'm supposed to take, then all the magic happens, and this warm, fuzzy feeling comes around me, and... Um, those, those pills, you know, they're sweet and they made me feel super warm and fuzzy. And I could like all of a sudden relate to all the kids in my class. Like all of a sudden feel super safe in who I was. I could all of a sudden focus in school and I could like hold a conversation. I wasn't shy to approach. But did you you find, did you find that the Ritalin made it easier like to, to play guitar, like to get better quickly? Or am I just fantasizing here? I would come home from school and just drink a ton of water and not eat and play guitar for like six hours straight. And I learned to shred. Right. I was like, all, I was all of a sudden just like the shred king. I was like the best guitarist in my grade. <laughs> but that's you know? so cool. And, and at and the same time, were you balancing it out with, with the swag and the beer at night and you were like basically hillbilly speedballing or whatever? Totally hillbilly speedballing. Um, so my parents worked. And so I'd go to my friends after class and just, um, but actually I, I, like, there were so many like lying kids. So I started like selling fake weed too. We just put literally like a rigging on a bag and all these kids who wanted so bad to defy the will of their parents. They'd be like, man, this stuff got me super high last night. <laughs> we literally just sold them oregano. So it was already like just an awful drug, drug selling, like awful shitty kid too. And I would sell kids like the pills I would get. So it was already like I knew money and friendship to come from those people like wanted to be my friend because I, like, I had swag, pill. So, you know, it's like this acceptance thing that just came so quick. I realized fully that acceptance came from using and having this stuff. And my guitar playing, you know, as therapeutic and as great as it is, it's still what I do as a vocation or whatever. There's like I found acceptance through that. Again, I hated myself. Anything I could do to get outside of myself was was clutch and then yeah in the evenings it was just like drink three old styles and get drunk and like smoke a bunch of swag and puke and 
right off the bat, I could do more than like my friends. You know, so three beers turned into like ten. Right. So by the time I was fifteen, I could just drink a drink like two six packs, and I was like already out drinking all my friends. I just became like this behemoth of it, and I never wanted to slow that down. I always wanted to keep it going, but I get like blacked out, piss my pants, fall over, barf, and all of a sudden, this magic drug came into my life called cocaine and this kid had some at a party and I took a bump and I remember I could drink like 25 Wait, years. wait. How old were you when, when Coke showed up? Ah, uh, 16 probably. So first of all, who ratted you out in the church? That kind of story I like. Who ratted oh, yeah. you we out? Gotta get, we gotta get down to that. Right. It was this girl and I told her, I'm like, yo, I have weed if you want to smoke some weed before a youth group. So like, hi, before a youth group. And she told the main pastor, who is this meathead, who's now, um, I don't know if I feel too bad saying his name, but he's the mega pastor now at a huge church in Houston. Wow. Not the main one. So every, I don't know, they can do the math. It's a, he's a youth pastor at a huge church in the Houston metro area. And he was like, you know, kid, I heard you're smoking weed. You can't be doing that and leading worship. Like, it sets a bad example. So there I was like, there's my first big resentment. I was like, fuck God. Fuck people in authority. They don't understand my pain. So this girl ratted me out. I ratted myself out to her. But it went but, together, um, right? Like like the idea of being out of church youth group while you're smoking pot, drinking, taking Ritalin, playing guitar. It's like, don't that, doesn't that open the doors to being like a rock and roll guitar player, like in a bigger way? Yeah. And it's like that mythos everybody buys into. I wanted to like self I thought that was like the pure good way to like good artistry or whatever. And that's what I followed for a long time was like self-destruction. Like self-destruction leads to great art. And then the great art just never comes. Just self-destruction and like blowing your fucking life up. It, come, it, you know, it comes like for some people. You know, who did you like? Like you were just saying that you loved, uh, you know, it's cool because me and Riley were talking before we started. And he was saying how uh, he was about to go on tour with uh, Dinosaur Jr., and you said that was one of the bands that you really loved when you were a kid. That's pretty amazing that you're in the the same, you know, conversation as your heroes. Like, that's fucking amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. That's an opportunity that's come over the last few years of, like, cleaning my fucking life up. Right. But, yeah, I always, I always looked up to people who, like, you know, totally blew up. You know, I don't know, when I'm a kid, it's like Hendrix right. and Nirvana and all that stuff, you know, like these people did this magical substance that led them to uh, a higher plane of existence, which is like amazing timeless music. And that's what I want. Um, and, you know, nobody twisted my arm to get fucked up. Nobody like put a gun in my face. I chose it all. So I don't want to put the blame on like people who are also sick and suffering. Um, you know, I chose everything. Nobody told me to smoke crack and do coke and get fucked up and take too much Ritalin and drink too much. It's all something that I chose and I wanted to happen to me. I wanted to blow up. It's, I think at times I was, was and still am more addicted to like the chaos and the sketchiness that like drugs and alcohol brought me. I, it's a fascinating life because I'm not from that. You know, my parents, they drink and do drugs, but they still have jobs and have managed to lead like a respectable life or whatever. What kind of drugs um, did your parents do? They smoked weed and drank my whole life. And my dad's like a, you know, an, an eighties cokehead, you know, but he's <laughs> one of those people that like had kids and 
stop, you know. Um, they still drink every day, um, but they haven't blown their life up, and it's not up to me to decide whether they're fucking alcoholics or not. Right. They tend to, they tend to have okay relationships with people right, and right. don't self-destruct. I, I grew up in, like, super middle-class uh New York city, Jewish life. My parents were both teachers. I didn't do any drugs until I was like 17. And then I fell in love with kind of the same shit that you fell in love with. And I just went that route through stonerdom. And then I, I, I got into heroin and, and I just destroyed everything. But when, when I started smoking weed, I was like, this is who I want to be. Like I wanted that identity. I wanted to be like those kinds of heroes, but it wasn't about self-destruction as much as it was about, I mean, to say it was about being cool doesn't really say it. It's about being like whatever you wanted to be, you know, and it sounds like that's a similar story with you. Yeah, exactly. And I got to say, for the record, I always hated weed, but I would still smoke it. Like, I didn't like weed or psychedelics, but I would take them constantly. And I don't even consider myself like a big stoner. It was just when I was a kid, it was, a, weed it was, was accessible. Like a yeah, and I hated the way it made me feel. It made me paranoid. I'm the type who's like, who never was like, whoa, this Pink Floyd record sounds good. I was like, I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate myself. <laughs> That's how it made me feel. Yeah. And, you know, even later on in my drug use, I, I wasn't a big stoner, but every time and now and then I'd get drunk or trying to come down from like beat or something, and we would just send me to this paranoid place. I'm like, I have to call my mom or, you know, or it's like you're tired of staying up all night just like, beating off like a thousand tabs of porn and you can't blow a load and you're just like trying to smoke weed to sleep or whatever. You know, I, I, I'm a total speed freak. That's how I identify. Like I'm a big Coke and crack and alcoholic. You know? So tell me, like now, you were saying you're 16 and the dude shows up with blow. What was, what was the scene? I was just at like a house party and this dude had blow that he got from his older brother and I couldn't wait to try it. I'd seen it in movies and I knew friends who had tried like, Dude, next week, like, uh, Bobby might bring some Coke. He can get some Coke. And I knew I already liked speed as in the prescription, the Adderall and Ritalin. I was, like, taking that every waking moment. So I knew it was in the same family. I didn't know what to expect. But as soon as, like, that narcotic, like, and I, I can remember, like, the car key even had, like, that Acura, like, or Honda logo on it. I still remember the car key he did it on. <laughs> and, like, and like the way it was like this slightly like off color, like nickel on the key and like the marks in the key, all the scratches in place where the nickel had been rubbed off. I still remember the way it looked and I can like still, cause you know, you can kind of smell the key too. And like feel that like cold key against your nose. And then the Coke, I did the bump at like a house party and I was, I was up all night and it's like that thing where like speed freaks say like, um, I did Coke so I could drink more. And I drank so I could do more Coke. It's like this sort of cyclical thing. You know, Coke and food was just the combo that absolutely made sense that I've been looking for my whole life. It's this like um, wobbly feeling from the booze and that lucid feeling from the booze. And, you know, booze brings everybody together. And the Coke could maybe just have this really, really long conversation about myself to other people. I could totally lead a conversation. I wasn't shying away from conversation. I could stay up all night drinking beer and be the life of the party. So that combo just 
made total fucking sense to me. Right? Isn't it, it funny? Was, Isn't it, it funny? Like the way people have different combos. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a heroin weed guy. I'm not a coke and booze guy. But you know, there are all these different. Or I'm, I'm a heroin weed benzo guy. You're a coke speed booze guy. And then there's like there's people who are just psychedelic guys. It's all about brain chemistry, though, right? Yeah, and there's just different combinations for different people. I think we all have the same. I don't know if you want to call it sickness, yes, problem, affliction, or, or sickness. Sure. Yeah, we all have that same shit, but it manifests itself in really different ways. Psychedelics, I've done plenty of. I've done enough for like seven lifetimes. But again, I always took them so I could feel part of, and I fucking hated the feeling of psychedelics. I didn't get the like um, touch the face of God experience that so many claim to have had with that. I didn't Never? feel closer to nature. No, I never felt closer to nature. I literally just got more inside myself and hated myself more. I had was, both. I had both. I, I'd have the experience in nature and I would hate myself. And I also knew that for me, psychedelics was a lot of work. It was too much work for me, you know? Yeah, it's like this whole, that's, and that's, you know, obviously different people have different experiences with Coke and booze or whatever. Some people hate the way they feel on Coke, so they don't do it. But for me, it made me like not get in my head at all because weed and psychedelics made me like think too much about my place in the world, who I am as a person. Like that's not what I look for in a high. I don't try to be introspective. I try to like shut off and party because I'm also like this attention-seeking egomaniac. Right. That's what that's what I dig when I'm high. Is like, you know, I like to be the center of attention at a party. I like to go to a bar and. You know, and that's like another addiction I have, which is, um, and to be transparent here, I'm like part of the rooms, like NA and CA and all that. That's what works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big thing that I've talked about in those rooms is like, I'm so, I, I, I love dive bars. Like dive bars are like my home. I was never a person who sat at home and drank and did coke. There was, there's was definitely dark moments where I did, but you know, by and large, I'm like, I love to be out, you know, part of my job is going to bars every night and I like to fit in there so I drink and do coke every night while I'm there and that made me feel really good and a part of so you know getting to know the names of bartenders and when you go to visit a new town being like where's yield watering hole where the granddad's drink you know it's like that bullshit like oh this is Americana this is real America right like, it's like know, be, it's another another way of being cool right a hundred percent. And there is cool things about dive bars. Yeah. Obviously there's like, you know, weird people there you can meet. There's like, it's a good hang. If you're not somebody like me, who's just, there's history, there's history on the wall. There's an old jukebox. It feels like a real place that somebody ruined their life in. And that's always very attractive somehow. It's so attractive. That lifestyle is so attractive. And again, my whole problem is just wanting to feel a part of and dive bars. I felt very a part of, you know, I, I always was like, fuck those highbrow places. And it's funny, even in my like crazy active addiction, I have tons of stoner friends. And I'd be like, weed isn't even a real drug. It doesn't even do anything to you. You have to like, think <laughs> on like coke and like heroin and pills are like the only actual drugs. I don't know why you're wasting time and money. So I was even like an egomaniac drug user who was like, I found the combo. No, we all do that. Let me, but let me ask you this, okay? When does your life change? to touring and and being like a working musician who gets to travel the country 
and, and get fucked up and also play shows and have fans and all that stuff. Like, when does that develop for you? Right. So I'm, I'm from Rockford, Illinois, originally. I moved to Chicago when I was 18 in 2007. Um, I tried to go to college for like a second, but I dropped out and then immediately found uh, solace in a home and like the cool underground, underground rock community that was going on there. There's all sorts of great bands there at the time. And there still are, but for my age group, there was like an awesome scene going on. What was it? So like we're talking, um, like a bunch of like weird warehouse spaces and DIY show spaces, which I'm sure are still prevalent there. But um, these big giant warehouses, because Chicago, I think it's getting more expensive now. But back then, it was like still considered like a cheap city. So you could get, you know, a hundred thousand foot warehouse for like nine hundred dollars a month, and then you have a bunch of crazy noise rock bands that nobody's ever heard of come through. And you charge five bucks at the door and have a party. And that's like, that's a DIY punk show or whatever. So that whole scene fascinated me. So I hung around with those people all the time. And through that started a bunch of different bands and projects. and got to make connections with people in other cities. So it starts off like this. I'm in Chicago and I have a band. And it's like, yo, those guys from Cleveland who came through are pretty cool. We should see if we can go to Cleveland. So you get a show in Cleveland, which is six hours away, and you're like, cool, he's in Cleveland. Yo, there's somebody else we know in Columbus. Let's hit them up and see if they can put on a house show for us. So then you go to Columbus, and you keep making these legs that are longer and longer, and your goals get bigger and bigger. Like, you know, I think there's like a space out in, in Queens in New York that can have it. So I made it out to New York eventually, and then L.A. And that dream eventually progresses into like, Yo, we have some friends who went to Europe. Let's see how they did it and who they hit up for shows over there. And all this is with the mindset that we're not going to make any money. You know, at the time, breaking even is like the best case scenario. It still is in a lot of ways um, for me at some point. Breaking even is all I wanted to do or losing money. So I'd work a crappy job like as a busboy or a sandwich shop, getting fired from all of them. There's a neighborhood in Wicker Park. A lot of the restaurants aren't there anymore, but I would walk you can walk through there and I can point to you like 10 different restaurants I've been fired from for being late, using on the job, et cetera, et cetera. And all this is tied in with like heavy, heavy cocaine and alcohol use. And, um, a lot of egomania, you know, uh, unfortunately I had a big ego on me at the time and that's what drove me. That's what kind of put me in this like shitty coked out entrepreneur setting so I was really good at making things happen. And I was a good hang to a lot of people, so they had me back a lot. And through that, eventually getting like a, a record deal, somebody at a record label had seen me. How did you and get then, the first deal? Um, friends in Chicago who had previously been with the label got me in touch with the people who worked at the label. And so that all that all worked out just through connections and that what, I had made through. What was, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, what what was your addiction like in that period, like where it became professional? Like how alcoholic, drug addict were you? Um, at the height, at the beginning of the height of my youth. No, at I, the beginning, I, like at the when when it became like holy shit, this is a job. You know what I mean? Like I'm signed. I'm 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 somebody. What was the band before it was Riley Walker? Uh, I was in a band called Tiger Hatchery, and then for I played a few tours with them, and I had a duo thing with this guy, Daniel Bachman. Um, 
which was just two guitar sort of droney weird stuff, like super far out psychedelic stuff. And then eventually I just kind of um, did my own thing, just played under my own name for a long time, and I still do. And those early tours are where I learned that like cocaine and, uh, and like learning to find drug dealers in other cities. Like I, I became able, like to me, it wasn't a venue in Nashville. I wasn't thinking like, oh yeah, this venue. I started to be like, oh yeah, there's a guy named <laughs> fucking Teddy in right. Nashville who I can call and who will meet me on a whim and give me like a $40 back, you know? So I, I started to get all these drug dealer connections and that evolved into the whole world so this is around like 2013 14 when i got like a record label started to maybe have some record again this is like the indie rock world so it's not a big world it's like kind of insular and small it's a big it's a big little world you know it's a really cool big little world with a little bit of money and a lot of like real people who are interested and really talented people yeah and i got to meet all sorts of awesome people like um i played a show in glasgow this like big benefit concert and Robert Plant was the headliner. Amazing. And I, so I got to hang out with Robert Plant and get like fucked up with Robert Plant. What? Ha- tell um, me the story. What happened? So like we played this big benefit show in Glasgow, Scotland for this like guitarist foundation. And he's the headliner. And there's all these acts. And I'm like the young scruffy one they wanted on the show. And the show went great. I got to like play on stage with Robert Plant. We got to like play all these like traditional blues songs. And I was there for like three days hanging out with him. Wait, 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 hold on. What, what, so- what songs did you play with him? We played this Burt Yanch song, Strolling Down the Highway. I didn't play like Stairway to Heaven with him or anything. No, <laughs> I but I wanted like to hear what blues songs you did with him. I mean, like I love Robert Plant and I love this story. Tell me more. I want to hear more about it. Yeah, so every night, because he's Robert Plant, I remember being in Glasgow and there was like no bars open around and he'd just be like, let me knock on the door. Like while the bartender's cleaning up and the guy would be like, Oh fuck, you're Robert Plant. Yeah, come on in. And so like, I'm like openly, and I like found cocaine on the street from like a street urchin dealer. It was like totally stepped on. And like, I, I remember like breaking it up on the bar in front of Robert Plant. I'm like, Robert, dude, do you still fucking get down or not, dude? Tell me all the books are real. Tell me all the documentaries are real. And he goes, I don't touch that shit anymore. And he sits on whiskey the whole night and just watched me make a fucking ass of myself. <laughs> and I got to say for the record, he's such a friendly, sweet guy. But I openly did, like, because I, I bought all this cocaine, like, expecting me to do it with Robert Plant. You know, I'm like, this is Robert Plant, the rock god. And he just sat there with, like, a look of, like, God, this guy's helpless. And I just made like, a total ass of myself. And I remember, like, because Coke gives me the shit. I'm like a big Coke shitter. I can like look at a bag yeah. of cocaine. I think a lot of cocaine addicts will like relate to this. You can not even, having not even sniffed any or done whatever with it yet, you can look at a bag and have to take a huge shit. It just immediately ignites your bowel. So I remember farting and like shitting my pants. Yes. Um, like really loud because I was so drunk. I like farted and I like, Robert Plant smelled my fart. And like called me like a disgusting pig. I was like, Robert, man, I shit my pants. I shit my pants. I shit my pants in front of you. And to his credit, he still hung out with me all night. So I shit my pants in front of Robert Plant and did a bunch of coke in front of him. But he's a stand-up guy and just likes his whiskey and a couple beers these days. Dude, you should write a song about shitting your pants in front of Robert Plant because it rhymes. It could be a great, a great indie rock wook jam. 
Yeah, that'd be really good for the algorithm these days. Music business is hurting, and they definitely need that. They need that. Are you kidding me? Um, what was I going to say? I, I th- why do you think that Coke makes you need to shit? Do you think it's because they put laxative in the Coke, or is it the Coke itself? Like, I remember in The Sopranos, Christopher says something about every time he smelled money, he needed to shit. And I feel like I felt like that, too, because if you're snorting through a dollar, the, the experience happens. You know what I mean? Like, the money smell even makes you want to shit. Yeah, I can still smell like a tube up my nose. Thank God I haven't put a dollar bill in my nose in, like, almost three years now. Oh, but, I, I, yeah, I'm really grateful. And fucking... I, maybe it's lactose. It is like a seed and a stimulant, and that just gets your bowels moving. Right. Maybe it's the stuff they put in there. But even like, because I, I remember going to, I went to South America on a tour, and I did not care about the music. This is like in the height of my drug addiction. Like music was so secondary, and that's what started to suck. My show started to suck. Um, the people around me were like, "God damn, dude, get some fucking help!" Like shitty on stage. We don't want to be in your band anymore. Like, it's just problems. You know, when I do coke, I'm an asshole. Um, not like in the screaming at people sense, but I'm just a selfish maniac who right. told me, I just want to be high, and, and the thoughts and cares of anybody else does not matter to me. I self-destruct, and I ruin personal relationships, whether that's with girlfriends, family, friends, bandmates. Like I, I've done it all, man. Like, I've burned those bridges. Some of them I've gotten back, but a lot of, a lot of it is still taking work and time. Yeah, I was, I was about to get so excited about these adventures, you know. I, I think there's nothing wrong with having adventures and knowing that there's a dude in Tennessee that has a good bag of Coke for 40 bucks. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the adventure. But the bottom line is if the adventure could keep going and still be great, you'd still be doing it. It got terrible, right? Yeah, and the adventure is so fun. And I know dope addicts like this too. Like, get, like, calling the guy... And that feeling for like an hour, where you're like, "Where's the guy? Where's the guy? Where's the guy? Where's the guy? Oh my God!" You late, you texted him. He's like ten minutes, but it's like two hours later, and you finally get the dope, whatever it is. Like the searching for it is like still part of the high. Oh I yeah. Think. But the the adventure in getting the dope, like being in a new city I've never been in, and I prided myself on this at the time. I could find coke like so easily in any city. It didn't matter if it were a small town USA. I go to a shitty bar. I get cool with the bartender. You know, this is all transactional, using people, manipulation shit. Right. I would just, like, be nice to them because I was eventually going to drop the bomb. I'm like, hey, you know where to get some fucking coke around here? And I would get it. I was so good at finding coke. That was probably my biggest accomplishment in my mind at the time. was like I had this cocaine and drug radar. It was also, I mean, but it's a victory. You know what I mean? It's fucked up. It was a victory. You, that was your mission, and then mission is accomplished, and you get endorphins from accomplishing a mission. Yeah, there was like a real end goal, whereas everything in my life, like I, I wasn't reaching my goals. My show sucked. My life sucked. So this was like I was meeting my goal every day. When I was in my hometown in Chicago, I had my guy who I could call, but like my real like junkie, drug, fucking like cokehead talents came out when I was in like, I don't know, Zurich, Switzerland, and I would just walk the streets for like 30 minutes, you know, some cigarettes that I found on the ground and like some money that I had somehow come into. And I would find a Coke guy. And God, the worst is when you're looking for it all day, all night, and then you get sold shit. Oh, yeah. Or like, or just bunk shit. That is like, and I 
would still snort it all, hoping that it's like right. somehow magically going to turn into this like bag right. that works. But dude, that's burned. the self-esteem thing. It's like it's like you're the hero when you get it. You're Riley Walker, drug god, and when you don't get it, you're Riley Walker, loser. And and I had the same oh fucking thing. God. It's like I can't believe they they knew that I was such a, a, a scrub that they gave me fucking fake methadone or whatever. You know, like yeah, like and you feel like you're a loser because you because they rip you off as opposed to feeling great when you actually find the good stuff when it has nothing to do with you. That oh god, there's nothing more upsetting. I was in Italy once, and the only time I ever tried to be a tough guy because I've been burned a lot on coke, fake coke. It always happens. Like, because people even tell you, like, don't buy it from people on the streets. You're going to get paid shit, but you can't find a connection. So when I have, like, 17 beers in me, I'd be like, there's got to be one guy out there who has the real shit. So I go, like, walking the streets, and sure enough, like, a guy sells me, like, a, a $50 bag that's just all, like, shit and, like, numbing agents that kind of, like, numbs your face and teeth but doesn't get you high. And they're like, and then I snort the rest of the bag. And I'm like, I'm going to go out and find this guy give him a good stern talking to but it's like this seven foot like jack 230 pound guy and i was like uh hey dude you sold me some shit a couple hours ago and i'd really like my money back and i'd like some or like give me some real shit if you have which i doubt you do and he just goes whack it just punches me right in the fucking face and he goes don't ever come around here again and sure enough like i just like went back to the bar with a huge black eye bleeding uh. and just like drank all night so, like, I'm definitely not a tough guy, and uh, I learned my lesson to not ask people about the big drugs because they are prepared right. to punch tourists right in the face right. if they should say anything. That's a great sure story. That's a great story. That's a great, that's a great cautionary tale. Um, when, yeah. When does it get bad? Like, when, when is it like, holy shit, this isn't working out? Cool, yeah. So I moved to New York um, from Chicago. I've been in Chicago 11 years. And I guess some of my drug addiction, like, you know, I had plenty of friends there. I burned a lot of bridges. I felt like I'd been there too long. And um, in my mind, I was like, the next phase is New York where I'm going to make it big. And when I get to New York, I'm going to clean up. So, no, that did not happen. I'll spoil the story for you. I went to New York, and what you guys have that we didn't have in Chicago you text a number, and a guy will deliver the drugs to you. Yeah. It's brilliant. The tow, the tow truck company, right? Whoever. Do they have... You know, the guy... Yeah. Yeah. It, it, until they don't show up, and then you have to figure out... Then you have to go back out, you know, to Brooklyn or the Lower East Side or something and figure some shit out. But, like... It, but does it, does it kill it for you to have them deliver it and you don't get to, to, to accomplish your mission and, and find it? Or do you love being the pig and shit and then bringing it to you? I was finally felt like a pig and shit. Like, I think that really is 9% of why I moved to New York. In the back of my mind, I knew that, uh, cause like there's really business cards. If you like talk to somebody in Brooklyn, I'm not blowing up any spots happening all the time, but like there's business cards of Coke dealers in New York. I've never seen a business card. I always had to go to like, a dude's house who had it in the safe and had like guns in the safe with them and was like a super sketchy guy, you know, like you go into the back door in his house and all that business. But in New York, you know, you just, there's an anonymous guy. You don't have to get to, They send a new driver every time. Right. It's just some, some kid on a moped or a bike or a car who pulls up, who's like outside and you get in the car 
give them like 50 or 100 bucks or whatever you're getting and they give it to you. It's like deal done. I loved how anonymous it was. You didn't have to get to know your dealer. It was purely transactional. And you didn't have to like go somewhere and knock on the door like in the freezing cold in the middle of January. Like they'll bring it to you 24 hours a day. So I think in the back of my mind, I knew that's why I was going to New York. Was because A, bars are open until 5 a.m. They close it to Chicago. And B, cocaine delivery. I have to go get it in person in Chicago. So that's probably why I'm in Chicago, if I think about it. And so that's when I really started to burn out. And I had never been a dope guy, really. I had snorted it probably like 13 times mm-hmm. in my days, but it, but it always made me sick. I always vomited when I did it because I wasn't used to it. Yeah. So every, every time I, because I would speedball sometimes and I would just vomit. I, I didn't like dope. It dope didn't make me able to pee. I couldn't fucking pee. Yeah, that was a thing. But it made it makes you it just makes you not care about anything in the most profound way, you know. It, you don't need to be the life of the party. You just need to just sit there, and 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 doesn't matter. <laughs> Nothing matters, which is what yeah. I liked about it. It's so weird. Like, did you like? I do you eventually get over that thing where you can't pee? Because I would sit on the toilet for like twenty minutes, knowing I had to take like a full piss. And like, just pee pee wouldn't come out of my dick. Yeah, you just zen out. You just, you, you just, you smoke a cigarette and you kind of distract yourself, and then all of a sudden you're pissing. You know, it's yeah. Hard. And do you have to like, do you have to like take laxatives to be able to shit? Because it doesn't make me able to shit either. Whereas coke, like we said, like I would look at it and it makes me just have to like diarrhea my brains out. <laughs> like, all, like dope blocked all that for me. It was really a strange drug to me. Well, you were doing I, it. You were doing it in Queens. Yeah, because I was starting to get cocaine, like, straight-up psychosis, man. Like, the voices started to come. And I had, like, bouts of... The voices only came to me when I was doing a bunch of Adderall back in the day, where I'd be up for, like, three days straight. Or, like, when I'd have, like, a crack binge, which is once every, like, three or four months. Crack was, like, a, a special occasion. You know, that was, like, a treat. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm really going to be fucked up for the next couple of days. I'm going to do some crack. Because, you know... I, you could find crack. I was living on the south side of Chicago my last year there in Inglewood, which is like a, a pretty rough neighborhood. And there was just dudes outside my door and my Coke dealer was all the way on the north side. So I didn't have any Coke connections. I'm sure I could have found on the street, but you know, there's there like a person on my street selling like $10 bags, $20 bags of crack. So I was just like, cool, I'm just going to get the crack. So every now and then I do that. And the voices have come, man. My last year in Chicago, I'm starting to hear voices a lot more. I'm isolated on the south side in this apartment because it's cheap and I want to be away from everybody. And it's funny because I moved to the south side of Chicago to get away from the scene, which is like the north and northwest side where all my friends and the music is. So I'm like, I need to be alone and get outside Coke, but I just got born to crack and isolating. And so I moved to New York. Um, some A relationship burns to the ground because of my drug use. And then I'm just like, okay, I'm going hard. I want to die straight up. Like, this is going to be like my death run. So I get super into, like, mixing. Because um, I can't do dope. Again, I can't do dope on its own. It's too weird. Like, it's like I don't like the straight down feeling. But the speedball feeling is fantastic. Speedball plus, like, you know, a handle of whiskey all day. Like, just sit on whiskey all day while you're speedballing. Were you shooting them? No, I never shot. I snorted it. I'm such a pussy. No, so when you when you snort a speedball, describe what it looks like. You're laying out a line of coke with the dope, or is it one after the other? How do you do it? I lay it out and I mix it together. I have two fine forms of powder, and I just 
I like break them up like with my driver's license and a cell phone, mix them together and do it in one straight line and just do that all day. Or you can have like, you know, um, cause my, I always like, I was kind of a pussy with dope. I was too scared of it. So I started out with like mad head size bumps. Cause uh, I remember being at a party way back doing like bumps of dope. And I remember the guy was like, you don't do this or he's like, all right, just do match head sizes, man. Just do match head sizes. Don't do any more if this isn't your thing. He's like, that's all you need. So I start by doing match head sizes. And then that turned into like a quarter inch fat line. And then it would turn into like a bigger line. And then I wanted more and more. And I got like a connection for, for dope. Um, and so I would just do speedball snorting it constantly, pretty much 24 hours a day. And the bars, again, are open in New York until 5. So I'd be at a bar till 5, just blacking out. And it was like that for about six months straight. This is where it starts to get really dark. And I got invited on a tour with that guy, Richard Thompson. Yeah, you know him? He's sure. A yeah, so I was opening up for him. Was he cool? Com- he was so cool. And he's a sober guy. Right. That comes into play a bit later. But he's like um, a legendary sober guy. Like big sober musician dude in that world. And I was on that tour using every single night because they're on a bus. And I was in a rental car kind of following their bus. I was by myself. I didn't have a crew or a driver or a friend or anything. I was just playing solo. And we were in all these weird towns. I didn't know anybody. Like, I don't know, Spokane, Washington, and St. George, Utah, where, like, dude, like, mountain states, like, hillbilly mountain states like that, like, dope is just on the street, like, intensities. It's, like, skid rows everywhere. So I started, like, you know, after I'd play, I'd be done by 8 o'clock. I'm like, I don't have any fucking friends here, so I'm just going to go party at Skid Row. So I would just, like, buy dope off all these, like, free urchins and, like, homeless people and, like, dirty wooks, you know, who are just, like, super high all day, you know, smoking meth, and then I wouldn't sleep all night. You were were smoking meth on the Richard Thompson tour, too? Constantly, dude, because, like, all these people were just like, I can't afford cups, I get cracking meth, you know? So you so could, like, but could you like, keep up with it? Like, can you, could you keep up with the dope habit, the, the meth and the Coke on a tour? Like, or is it too expensive or did you get sick on the tour? I was getting sick on the tour, but I was also making $500 a night. Wow. For like $600 a night cash. So amazing. It was awesome. Dude, it was amazing. awesome. And I yeah. didn't have to get hotel. I didn't have to get hotels because I was partying out on the, literally on the streets every <laughs> night. So it was like yeah. a pretty, it's crazy. Yeah. And like, you know, again, like when, when, when I'm down on money, I'm really down. But when I'm good, dude, it's pretty fucking good. So getting five hundred dollars a night cash and having no crew or overhead besides the gas in the car to pay for, which yeah, is like I don't know, forty bucks a day maybe. It's like perfect. So I had, dude, yeah, I had so much fucking cash on me to just party all night, and so I would get like, you know, two grams of coke at like a hundred bucks probably, and then I get like three or four points of dope and then like I would just like keep shelling out money to people all night I'm like yeah dude this bag's on me this bag's on me and it went on like that for like that whole tour I was psychotic and drinking the whole time too god I was drunk until eventually like I I was literally up like four days straight not sleeping I would get in the car drive eight hours um openly smoking crack like like I was smoking cigarettes like in the car in a rental car which, by the way, they smelled the crack and the cigarettes in the rental car, and I did not get my deposit back. 
So don't do that. Did they It'll say? Did they say this? This car smells like crack smoke and cigarette smoke, or did they just say you've been smoking? No, there's like this. There's like this car is filthy. You've been clearly smoking. And like the pipe I had, it was hot, so I put it on the passenger seat. There was just like burn marks in the yeah. passenger seat everywhere. Yeah. It was disgusting. I returned. Like, <laughs> I never thought I would get so low. Like that's like out of like a dark documentary. Like I returned a rental car, and it was just clear that a crackhead had been in it. Yeah. You know, for like a month straight. And so eventually, man, I found, and I've never been a Benzes guy either. But I was at a bar in in New Mexico, and this guy was like, "I don't. I have like Xanax. I can sell you." So he sold me his whole bottle of Xanax and um, he had a bunch of, and I bought like a, a 20 milligram of Oxy. <clears throat> and so I snorted the, like the whole Oxy, a bunch of dope, um, probably a gram of Coke, had about, I don't know, had me about 20 beers. I'm like, this is where I kill myself. This is like a winning, this is my fucking jackpot combo that's going to just fucking kill me, dude. I was 100% intent on killing myself. But how, how, hold on. I've heard you tell this story before, and I have to ask. You're saying you had a bottle of Xanax, you had some Oxycontin and booze and Coke. How suicidal were you? Incredibly suicidal. Like 100% intent on dying. You're like, I don't like want, that- you wanted to die. For real. Yeah, and for me, like, the end of my drug use isn't, like, the option of recovery or getting clean didn't even come to my mind. It's like, the only way out of this is death, like, overdose or suicide or both. You know, like, I was never like, I can get clean because that that doesn't, I mean, I'm sure everybody's listening and you could agree, like, that that doesn't come to mind. That's impossible. That's not something that's possible. Well, you you described going to Queens as maybe I'll clean up. So maybe it was in the back of your head someplace or was it not? I mean, like I know when I was at my worst, it was impossible. You know what I mean? I would go to meetings and they would say, call me if you want to use. And I would just leave and get high because I just didn't want to stop. You know what I mean? It, it didn't become possible until something happened in my head. So for you, like you were just like, it couldn't possibly happen. The only way out was fucking not living anymore. Yeah, and in my mind, I had, I'm a disgusting person. Everybody hates me. That's like all this thinking eventually leads me, all the drug use leads me. It's like everybody hates me. I'm a, I'm a blight on humanity. I suck. I'm an asshole. This is the only thing I can do. Everybody will be happier if I'm fucking dead. You know, it's like that thing. That's like psychotic, cyclical thinking that right. makes me, you know, it's my sickness, man. But meanwhile, yeah. but meanwhile, you're getting accolades and people are loving your music and you're getting good reviews and you're killing it on the road. Like, how do those things coexist in your head at that time? Music is just the way I make money and everybody's lying. Right. And and um, it's like imposter syndrome, too. It's like, I don't deserve this shit. You know, somebody else who's like, isn't a crackhead junkie alcoholic deserves this. You know, like, I suck. I'm... I've lied my way into this. I'm an imposter. You know, it's like this imposter syndrome that, you know, is deep within me that I still struggle with all the time. Any, anybody in any creative field probably does, except mine just manifests itself in like staying up for 14 days straight and smoking crack. Or when you talk, Um, when you talk about like the, you know, like before you talked about your heroes, like, like a Jimi Hendrix or a Kurt Cobain or whatever. And like, basically, you know, it's, it's only scale, but you're, you're opening for Richard Thompson. You're getting paid good money. You're getting high every night and you're miserable. So that's how you can probably like understand where they were coming from. Yeah. Right. And it's like, it's weird that my bottom 
you know, like one of my many bottoms was like opening for somebody who I loved and admired my whole life and making good money at it. That's how miserable drugs make me is like, I don't see what's in the moment or how good I have it. To me, this is like a living hell, like being on the road with somebody that I love so much and making good money at it. And generally like the audience is appreciating it. Right. You know, it, it drove me to absolute insanity. You know, it's, it's, and my life is completely unmanageable. I couldn't stop being high. And I, I can't imagine a life without this. For me, the big thing, like a big hang up in getting clean is that like, oh no, what am I going to do on the weekends? Like, what about my social life? This is who I am. That's just like, that's, I wish to God I realized that like life is totally possible without this shit. Years before, it would have saved me years of misery. But like for me, I'm a, again, I'm a social user. I like being out. Eventually, I, like, you know, at the end, just going to Skid Row to have fucking friends who will like you. And like, you know, I'm not a Skid Row person. I didn't come from that world. You know, this is like, I don't belong on Skid Row. You know, I've, I've got opportunities in a life that's like great, you know, but here I am just like trying to cop off like people who I have nothing in common with and who I just see as like vessels for drugs. You know, they're not people to me. They're not sick people to me. They're not homeless people to me. They're people who have drugs. That's right. all anybody was. Right. And, and again, it's and also it, that fantasy of misery though. You know what I mean? You're, you're in the fantasy where you're with the people who are doing what you wanted to do, even though deep down you knew you didn't belong there. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just like, again, I hate myself. I want to be outside myself. I want to live through some, I want to live somebody else's life. that's not mine. Um, and I'm so attracted to sketchiness. I'm so attracted to misery. I, I always love going to cop in like the wrong neighborhood, yeah. the wrong side of town. Yeah. I love this. I love the feeling that comes from like when you go to like some weird hillbilly's house out in the country who has like guns on the table, like while he's like cutting shit up for you. Sure. Um, me too. I, yeah, like I'm, I'm the same. I'm exactly the same way. I, I know exactly what you're talking about because all of a sudden you're accepted by this incredibly exotic person. This totally down and out person sees you as one of them. You're finally the fuck up you've always wanted to be somehow, and you make it out of there. You make it out of there with what with mission accomplished. You know. Yeah, and it's like you know I'm not, definitely not gonna like sleep at this house or like live this lifestyle, <laughs> but the sketchy the sketchiness like just like turned me on so much. I love going to like four different people to find Coke. I love talking to this girl who knows this guy who knows this gangbanger on this side of town whose friend sells, you know, like that fucking adventure, the mission, that connection, the mission and like the misery that you're in trying to find it. Like, Oh God, let me find it. And then you get high and you wake up the next morning, like feeling like shit and sick. And you're like, I guess that was worth it. You know, it goes nowhere. There's no end game to all this. So let's get to the, let's get back to the suicide attempt. You, you fucking get right the Xanax, on. you fucking have the oxy, and you're ready to not wake up. Yeah, I take like a lethal, like you know, definitely kill a bowl amount in my mind. But instead, I fucking wake up, and I'm pretty generally pissed. I like wasn't very happy that it didn't work. I was so upset. Um, I was very upset that it didn't work. I'm like, I just want to die, you know. But then I just carried on that day and played another gig. And that was like, that, that definitely was an aha moment, but I think I was still too fucked up to like live in the aha moment. Of course, trying to kill myself, that was like the one direct, um, absolute real attempt, you know? I wanted to die. I was dead set on dying. 
haha, that's that. Yes. And fucking, I woke up, and I think I was still too fucked up to be like, oh, aha, I'm supposed to live, and maybe I could clean up. I continued to get fucked up for like three more weeks after that. And um, I was really ashamed to tell anybody about that, that I had done that. I didn't tell anybody. I was really, really ashamed of it. I'm, you know, I'm not going to tell. I was too scared to ask for help. I was, I didn't consider myself um, worthy of anybody's help. I didn't feel loved. I was at my sickest and lowest. So it was hard for me to accept love or even attempt to like something good for myself. So I just kept chipping away every day at like smoking a bunch of crack and doing cocaine and dope to come down until one day, I don't know what it was. I just woke up feeling the sickest I ever have. I guess some dope withdrawal. I was really starting to feel those withdrawals from the dope. And I begging for mercy. You know, I'm sure he's been through withdrawals a hundred times worse and more than I have. I was just like begging for fucking mercy on my bed um, in my room in New York, just like sweating and crawling around, vomiting, nausea, shitting my pants. Yeah. Not ha- I remember being like butt naked just because I was like hot and cold, hot and cold, I, like shit all over the floor of my room. And I passed out like next to my shit in front of my face. And I woke up and there's just like a pile of my shit. Um, so, you know, just like, yeah, it just kept getting grosser and grosser and weirder and weirder. And I was starting, the, the few people in my life who I talked to with some regularity were like, something's like really off because I wasn't speaking in complete sentences. I would like go off on like a conspiracy theory and the next moment be like really coherent and kind of okay sounding. But then the next sentence be like, I want to kill myself. I don't think I deserve to live. Ah, like, you know, I was like really saying scary shit to people who cared about me. And it's just that like, you know, sick and tired, sick and tired um, moment. And I reached out to the dude who ran my record label. I was on at the time. And what was the label? The label's called Secretly Canadian. I'm still very, I'm not on them anymore. Contract stuff, nothing bad. They're also the friends. And the guy who ran the label, this guy, Chris Swanson, who's like a, um, he's a, he's a, he's a big name in like the, the record label is. I, I owe him a lot, actually. Very, very dear and near to me and cares a lot about. I reached out, I'm like, I literally don't know what to do. I'm dying. I can't stop using. And he himself is not an addict or in recovery. Um, so he was like, okay, dude, uh, I've seen a lot of people in your situation. And let me talk to people. A lot of people who have been in your situation and I'll get back to you. So he eventually found some homies, you know, um, who were part of the rooms and they wanted to, f- and they fucking 12 set me, man. They spread the message and like, don't gotta live like this dude. It's like it's only possible to get out. And, you know, we were in your same spot and we haven't touched in X amount of time. Right. And I thought that was fascinating because, again, like, I don't have, I have a lot of, like, alcoholic family members, drug addict family members. I don't have any family who have ever done recovery that I know of. It's like a foreign concept. And not that they're against it. It's just, like, nobody's ever asked for help. But when you're, when you were in your deepest misery, like I know it took, it took me forever. I mean like beyond forever. It took me having kid to, you know, to figure out how to get out of it. Um, and it's, it sounds like what was the, the, like 
I don't know, like when the misery got to the point where you were finally like, had you asked for help before that? Or was that the first time you were like, fuck, I can't do this? No, my big thing, dude, like that I work on so hard in therapy right now. And I talk about in the rooms all the time right now is I fucking isolate. I don't tell anybody what's going on in my head. Right. That's gone on. My, that's gone on my entire life. That is like probably the core of what's wrong is I don't talk about anybody. You know, um, I still struggle with it to this day. I have like a girlfriend who we're very in love and doing amazing, but you know, I still struggle on a daily basis to like talk about what's going on in my mind. It's really hard for me to open, man. So no, I never asked anybody for help. So what do you I think it like was a- though? What do you think it was that made you call that the record guy? What do you like? Like, do you remember that day? Like, do you remember how you felt? Like what, what happened in your head? Um, you know, to, man, to like, uh, to people who are in rooms of recovery, I'd say it's like a higher power thing, but on paper to anybody who's not familiar with that stuff, I would just say like, I was literally sick from my stomach and I couldn't go on like that another day, like waking up next to my shit. It was just disgusting. Too much. I get it. Yeah. My, my eyes have been cracked open and you know, that's like, that's what we call a rock bottom. You know, like I had to get to that dark, gross level and, you know, even trying to kill myself didn't work and that didn't make me stop that day. You know, that's, that's usually enough for somebody to be like, okay, where's the help? Where's the help? It's just funny though. It's just funny the way it's random that like we can be like, ah, this sucks or I want to die. Oh, I'm not dead. And we keep going, we keep going until finally something happens. You know, I'm, I'm happy with the idea that it's higher power. It's, but it's something happens. And then all of a sudden you have a chance, you have a moment to take a breath. What was, what was getting off the drugs? Like, like, how did you do it? You did music cares, right? Yes. I went through music cares who anybody who's in the music biz. Um, I, I recommend them. They work, they helped me. You reach out to them and you say, Hey, I'm in the music biz. And that's, yeah, they got me into rehab and my, um, it didn't, you know, you don't have to have serious connections or anything, but they will help musicians get into rehab. Where'd you go? So that's the thing. I went to a place in Nashville, uh, called Cumberland Heights. And I was cut cause I was a little pissed off at first that they were sending me there because I wanted to go to fucking the desert in LA and do yoga. Right. And like, you know, I wanted that rehab, right. you know, I want, I want the yoga one, Right. but instead, <laughs> but I remember they're like, okay, we can get you a bed in this place. Like not next week, like you're going tomorrow to this place, Cumberland in Nashville. And I was like, all right. So I did a little like Googling or whatever. And you know, like the videos like we're based in 12 step recovery. And I was like, man, I don't want to do that 12 step shit. I'm like, I'm not into the God thing. I don't like want to have like a Christian, you know, cause again, like my big resentment when I was a kid is like God shit. And I'm like, I've done the church thing. It doesn't work for me. I'm totally closed off this. But, and I, I remember asking them, you know, here's like how much of an egomaniac I was. It's just like, this guy says something in like the desert in California. And they're like, okay, dude, we're paying for this. Like, shut the fuck up. Take it or leave it. <laughs> you know? So fortunately I took it. I definitely had my, my doubts. I, there was like, you know, moments, like, cause I had one day to get my shit ready and get on a plane. They got me a plane ticket and everything. Nice. They fucking hooked it up. Right. And you know, I realized, I didn't realize at the time I wasn't thinking at the time of how many people 
would love to be in my position, you know. How many of my friends now who are fucking dead from this stuff, how much they would have loved the opportunity to get help. And I'm here I am, it's being handed to me. This is a free opportunity. Rehabs are not cheap. I'm sure many of your listeners know and you know. They're so expensive. And they're sending me to a top-notch facility for free. And I don't have to do anything. I just have to drop out. But my whole thing is like, well, I'm going to like miss my guitar and play music. Like, I've fucked that, dude. Just go to rehab and get the help. The guitars will still be there. Life will still be there. And so I went. And um, at first, it was really uncomfortable. This is my first rehab. and My first real attempt at getting sober. Because there have been times in, in my life where I would get like, you know, three days, four days, one week. Wow. And, you know, there was other people in there. And like the top, it's funny now because like the top dog in sobriety, my first reaction to hearing somebody in the rehab being like, you know, what's up? Uh, I'm Robbie. I'm a, I'm a junkie. And today I have nine days. And I remember being like, nine days? What the fuck? Like, how did you get nine days, dude? What is nine days? Like, you're, you're a sober god to me. Like, this is, this is totally possible. And that's where I started to realize, like, a life without this sort of stuff is actually possible. When, dude, when, did, when did the 12 steps not suck in your mind? Like, how long did it take to enjoy the process? The first couple of meetings sucked because I was coming off everything. I didn't want to be at rehab, obviously. It is because it is weird. It's like you go to this place and you have a roommate all of a sudden. Yeah. Who's like from like Pillhead Juggalo from Kentucky who you have nothing in common with, right? And then they had 12-step meetings like four times a day in the rehab. And I'm like, fuck this, dude, like for the first couple of days. But then once I got into the stories, you know, when there's like a, a speaker meeting, that's what really got me. The book meetings I thought were a bit dry and boring. Um, I enjoy them now. That just comes with time and practice for me. Um, but once I got to hear people's stories, man, like I was waiting that because even when I was like going to dive bars, as much talking as I was doing on cocaine, I still managed to like love hearing like crazy characters, kooky character yeah, stories. Totally. You know, so I love like crazy fucking war stories and I love, um, hearing how people got to where they are now. That stuff fascinates me. It still does. I, go to like speaker meetings all the time because that's my jam that's what i enjoy so the first couple speaker meetings of hearing people raw as hell in rehab just coming off of whatever they were on alcoholics junkies speed freaks pills whatever you know hearing those like raw vulnerable stories and i guess for the first time seeing vulnerability i had never seen like because you know i'll say for me you know i lied and was an egomaniac. It was full of shit my entire youth. So now for the first time, I'm actually seeing like vulnerability in human beings, which I had never come into contact with and for sure never offered anybody else. Or if somebody was offering it to me, I didn't want to listen. So now I finally wanted to listen to that stuff. So it took other people, you know, which goes to show that like, oh, there's no way I could have done this alone. I've tried to white knuckle it. I've tried to read a couple self-help books, but I need other people who have what I have and I need to talk about what I have and hear about what other people have in order to stay clean. How long were and you, uh, how long were you in Tennessee? I, it was a 30 day program. I was there 30 days. Did you play guitar there at all? I brought my guitar, but they were like, no, dude, put that in the closet. Like, and I'm really great. Cause like, I was kind of like, I saw it 
for me, I saw rehab as like a writing retreat almost ever. So like, I'm going to go there and like write, write a, a great, <laughs> yeah, dude, which is like the dog. I get it at the time. Like I understand where my mind was at the time. Like I'm going to go in there and like write this great masterpiece of a record. But you know, to their credit, and I was pissed. Like they took my guitar away from me. They were not ripped on my hands. Like we're just going to keep this in the closet safe for you. And in my head, I was like, man, fuck these guys. Don't they want me to express myself? It's like, no, we want you to learn how to not do drugs right now. We want you to learn. And that was important for me because um, in my mind, throughout active use, everything was about the next gig, the next paycheck, you know, um, whatever can fulfill my ego, the stage performance, making a record, et cetera. And I feel like now music is so secondary in my life. It's an important thing in my life. And I love music and I love doing it. But like being a sober person is like so much more important than that. And I have put music before everything and that eventually drove me to just cocaine mania. Totally. But the, and you also know? the recovery facilitates the music. You know, if you put the recovery first, you can be the most killer guitar player, songwriter ever. And you can't do it the other way. You know what I mean? No. And there's plenty of YouTube footage out there of like the last seven years of me fucking sucking on stage because I'm fucked up. So I just want to state for the record, in my experience, if anybody's listening, like you get better at music and writing when you're not fucked up. All for me, okay? Um, that's because that's a big myth, and I've heard that a lot from other musicians in my place. For me, I can only speak for myself. I got way better at playing guitar and singing and performing, and I like music way more now. I'll just say that for your the absolute record. Your music is great. You know, I, I'm 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 like a little shocked that you hated psychedelic so much because your music has a little bit of a, you know, psychedelic journey kind of built into it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's elements of like that music that I'm inspired by, you know? Um, but like when it comes to taking psychedelic, fuck that. I hated that shit. It made me think too much. I want to do Coke and party all night. I also love the record covers, man. The new cover looks like the, uh, the old, uh, Gilberto Joe beam records, the painting shit. It looks so good. Yeah, I like minimal weird paintings a lot um, for album art. Um, and, I, and, and to get back to the other point, it's like I don't, I, I thought I was God's gift to earth for music. And, you know, like I was put on this earth to play music. This is my purpose. And I found such a different purpose now. Music is a cool thing I get to do because I'm alive and not fucked up, you know. So I, I'm just so happy to be alive and um, not fucking hungover right now and having this lucid conversation about stupid shit. And um, <laughs> I, it, it just, it just makes much more sense now, man. And I'm, I'm not God's gift to earth for music. I'm like, I have, you know, music to me is like a temporary break from like an actual job. You know, I, I do this because like, I don't have a fucking real job. It is it, a real it, job. It, you have, you have the dream, man. You have the job of being a competent talented musician like what's the plan like dinosaur jr isn't happening so i'm gonna i'm gonna say this like we were talking before we started recording and uh and riley's in kingston new york which is a very like diy centric kind of spot and he said he's recording a wook record right now so so tell us about the wookie record well, it's just got uh, new age spiritual jams that are all based around like drone music and improvised music. I like to say that I invented new jam, like there's new metal. Well, I invented new jam. That's kind of my joke. Right. Um, 
I take inspiration from the Grateful Dead and uh, like, you know, Fish and all those bands and stuff like that. But put like indie rock and like post rock with it. It's it's my joke. It's have not you very heard? Serious. Have you heard this uh, good old Grateful Dead cast? No, dude, you gotta listen to it. It's like it's like these crazy deadheads like who who run like all of the dead shit, who run like the dead serious channel and all that stuff. And they have this this podcast where they take every like they start with Working Man's Dead and they take it apart track by track by track and like the parts and like how they recorded it and what else was going on. And it's like, it's amazing. You got to listen to it. It's really good. They do working man's dead Americans beauty. And now they're doing live dead. And they did like a special about Owsley and it's, it's fun. You should listen to it. I'll dig in. That sounds amazing. It's really fucking good. And they also talk about how they recorded shit and where all the parts came from and this and that. Um, so what's the plan? Like it's COVID. Like, are you going to go on tour are you going to put out another record? Like what, what's the dream? Like, where do you want to live? What do you want to do? Um, well, my dream right now is like, you know, I like what I have right now, which is like, I live up in Vermont. I got pretty low mortgage costs. I, I'm really lucky right now. I got a cool dog. I got a cool girlfriend. I'm living the dream right now. I think in a lot of ways, um, as far as like work, um, touring is obviously up in the air right now with everything. It's like a total deal of acceptance. It's out of my hands. I'm fine. I just have a cell phone bill and health insurance and rent. You know, I don't have kids or anything like that. So I'm fortunate. Um, I sell a lot of records on Discogs and Bandcamp and stuff like that. That keeps me afloat. And I'm I'm do you still go to meetings? I go like three or four times a week. Yes. And how much time you have? Um, I got sober March 25th, 2019. Nice. Very good. And this is really exciting. I think you were an amazing guest. Really good. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be on it. Dude, you were, you were really good. Um, and so, so you're just fucking chilling and like, hopefully this COVID shit fucking, uh, lessons and you can go back on the road. How about, how about, how much fentanyl did you encounter in your crazy cocaine and heroin addiction with all these deaths popping up now? Um, a lot of my homies went out that way. It's really sad. Um, a lot of people I went to rehab with have gone out that way since um, I've gotten out. Um, but earlier this year, I had a, a, a dear friend go from that. It breaks my heart. I'm sure I've snorted some of it. Um, luckily, my, I didn't die. Um, but my experience with it, and I remember encountering a couple of people who were like, I don't have heroin, but I have fentanyl. Um, so I didn't buy that directly just because the news scared me and stuff. But there's no way I haven't snorted it. Right. I mean, I surely I have. Within co- I never got the bad Coke where it kills you, thank God, somehow. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's out there, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm not using it right now. Well, you're, you're a serious Coke guy. Like, I was not a serious Coke guy. I did Coke like, like – I would do Coke if it was there because I felt like I had to. But I never would seek it out. And I was, uh, I work in this deli in Manhattan. I work at a very famous deli and, um, and I was talking to one of the guys there and his friends sell Coke with the fentanyl in it. Like, what do you think the, I mean, like, I, I mean, would it feel like a speedball if it's Coke with fentanyl? If everyone's doing this Coke with fentanyl, do you think it feels different than actual Coke? I mean, I've gotten batches of Coke that obviously had meth cut in it because like your arm starts to twitch and stuff like that. That's kind of how you know. 
and it's like really glassy and like your nose bleeds and stuff. You say like burns like fucking crazy. But I've also gotten coke that burns like fucking crazy and all of a sudden has like this like narcotic effect on like really chill actually. I think that's not, I don't yeah, it's like a weird thing because people get coke to just stay up. So I'm always confused about why it's in the coke. It's it's like a cheap filler that makes you feel high. I don't fucking know the people mixing it way high up. I don't know their intentions or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I don't get that. I've definitely like had some weird coke though that made me feel like sick to my stomach and like vomiting and the next day like yeah you have like dope withdrawals and stuff it's, it's there so i'd love it if you read a listener email would you read a dopey nation email for us right now you read it out loud yeah hi dave my name is kendall i'm from san antonio texas i just started listening to dopey within the past month and i've kept up since the first episode i heard which was christmas in august i recently listened to the episode with gregory coke yeah, Kofalkis, I think, but it doesn't matter. Kofalkis, and I wanted to let you know that how you said you feel about cigarettes is exactly how I feel. Like, as you started saying it, I was like, yep, I know where he's going. I used to jewel all day, every day, for years, and when I would quit, I have this nostalgia for it. But when I did try to go back to it after quitting, I learned that it wasn't the same. And it's the same thing for me with cigarettes. I often think I really want one, and I learned that I just feel like shit after I smoke one. But that did take learning. What I've realized from that is that nostalgia for things will always exist. But once an era is over, it's over. And once you've really changed, you've changed. No matter how hard you try, you can't fight that reality. Because it's poor, the better. I've been saving a pack of cigarettes because I have a tendency to just hold on to things for just in case purposes. But since I stopped drinking about a month ago, I see the full pack of the trash because I know that, in my right mind, I will not be going back. It took a while for me to embrace my own growth and my own need for sobriety, but without letting nostalgia and butt hold me back, the way I look at it, feeling nostalgic towards cigarettes and liking the scent, while still knowing that in reality I don't want to smoke them, does me no harm. Those two feelings can coexist. Anyway, yeah, I really enjoyed this episode, and I'm really glad that I found your podcast. That's a nice email from Kendall. You smoke or no? I, I blast so many cigarettes. I'm a huge smoker. So what do you think about this? What does this, what does this email say to you? Well, obviously I've known since I was nine years old that cigarettes <laughs> suck, you know? Um, but maybe but, this was, maybe know, I, this was higher power moment. Maybe this is a higher power moment. And I, I, you know, that's like, cause that's like the next thing on the list, but cigarettes are always like, I'll get to them eventually, but it is time to get around. Smoking's terrible for me. I smoke American spirit yellows. Right. I hold them in my hand and I, I romanticize them like I romanticize dive bars and it's just yeah. it's leading to my low death and destruction for sure. I think I, I, I stopped smoking cigarettes around three years. I have six years. I just got six years. I think I stopped smoking cigarettes around three years, but it was more because of my, my wife and my kid were giving me shit about it. And also I would cough all day. I would cough and cough yeah. and cough. And on that, on that, episode i was saying how like if i have a cigarette i just want to smoke all day like i want to do nothing else i don't want to ever stop you know i've been smoking cigarettes all day today and while we're on the phone yeah it's like part of it's part of my daily life all the time well listen smoke them if you got them you were amazing on the show riley i really appreciate you coming through it was it was a great great uh talk and like a good message and um dude i'm honored and thrilled to have you on the show it was my pleasure. I appreciate it. All right. So stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris.
Thanks, man. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjos. Things hard to keep in tune. <clears throat> Wanna take a walk around the world. Wonder what it do me any good. Till I get some honey in my pockets and I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood I wanna be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Wanna take a ride up in the sky Watch as airplanes just pass me by And I want to see a Learjet liner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive I want to be good so bad I want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had in my burned out basement listening to the dopey show Home friends I had her on this little radio I keep checking on my pulse because it feels like I might die But the thought straightening up sounds so much better when you're high And I wanna be good so bad I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Well, I hope y'all hear this Makes it through the, uh Big inbox emails. Feel free to play a clip on the show if you want. I, if not, I know it kind of sucks. Alright, I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, y'all.